Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Ahead of the 50th episode of the Asia Chessboard, we thought we would take a look back at some of our favorite conversations with key players from the past two and a half years. While these conversations were recorded in 2019 and 2020, the themes covered are still just as relevant today. The first conversation is from episode two of the Asia Chessboard, featuring Ambassador Richard Armitage. In this episode, Ambassador Armitage and Mike grade the U.S. free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, as well as Japan's and China's grand strategies in Asia. Are there still lessons from the Vietnam War for how we do Asia policy today, Asia strategy? Yeah, I think the, the main one is if you're going to get into something, simultaneously figure out what conditions will allow you to get out of it. And that's the main lesson that I've taken through my uh, career. Now, we didn't always do that in 2003 and the invasion of Iraq, but, but uh, that's the, the major lesson I learned. We got out of Vietnam and we largely got out of Southeast Asia. We're now re-engaging in Southeast Asia, or at least we were with the rebalance and the pivot. Just reflecting again on many decades in that part of the world, what's the importance of Southeast Asia for us right now? I mean, the big pieces of this chessboard in Asia are Japan, China, Korea, and India, but the, the game right now is being played in Southeast well, Asia. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's self-evident. The uh, geostrategic location of the Southeast Asian nations, the combined uh, GDP of about $3 trillion, uh, a population of over 600 million, the largest Muslim country. So uh, they are... I wouldn't call them exactly pawns. They may be knights on the chessboard, but they count. Part of the problem with Vietnam for us was um, our approach was derivative. You know, it wasn't about Southeast Asia. It was about NATO and deterring communist expansion in Europe. It was about Japan. It was not really about Southeast Asia, uh, at least looking at it historically. Have we gotten over that? Because in the war on terror, when we were both in the Bush administration, for you or me or Bob Zellick, we got it. But for a lot of people, you know, you had to frame Southeast Asia strategy in the context of the war on terror. For the Obama administration, they pivoted to Asia, but now it's derivative of China and competition with China. Are we sort of thinking about Southeast Asia on its own merits the way you just described, or are we still stuck in this? No, I think we're probably still uh, yeah. stuck. Even the the language what we now use, a free and open Indo-Pacific, uh, the picture I have in my mind is in the north, you have two great democracies of Japan and Korea. Uh, you've got India on one side and the other bookend is the United States. And then in the south, uh, you've got Australia and New Zealand. And uh, so that's the way I think we kind of see the nations, uh, though we should and could spend a lot more meaningful energy and time on Southeast Asia themselves, uh, Southeast Asian nations. We do in Vietnam. So uh, it's not a completely blank slate. Uh, we've made some progress there, but we have not in the other nations, in my view. So the administration's national security strategy, uh, the national defense strategy, the most recent iterations of the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, Acting Secretary of Defense Shanahan unveiled this DOD report on the FOIP, free and open Indo-Pacific strategy for DOD. It's all about competition with China. Um, Are we winning that competition, you think? No. 
How come? We're not winning it. We're not applying the in total a whole of government approach. Uh, Acting Secretary Shanahan's uh, speech at Shangri-La was okay. Uh, I didn't find much new in it. It was all about defense, as you allude to. Uh, and it wasn't about the other elements or the other arrows in our quiver, uh, education, uh, political engagement, economic engagement, cultural engagement. And if we don't do all of that, uh, then we're not going to prevail in this battle of ideas with China. Which parts do you think we're doing better on, uh, we, the U.S., or the administration on the free and open Indo-Pacific right now? I think we're doing pretty well on the development of relations with India. This has been a bipartisan approach for Democrats and Republicans. We're doing real well with the development of relations with Japan. We're having some difficulties, not of our own making in many cases, with South Korea. It's a mixed picture, in my view. And Southeast Asia, for heaven's sakes, we don't even have an ambassador in Singapore now. It's two and a half years into an administration. What about the trade piece? Pulled out of TPP, free and open. Those words sort of would connote a free and open economic system in Asia. Well, they do. uh, Pulling out of this and then thank God that Japan and Prime Minister Abe stepped into the breach and I think rescued the TPP from total disaster. But it won't be what it should be without the participation of the United States. And that's apparently not going to happen in this administration. The irony of this is, to me, that the things that I understand, for instance, that the Trump administration is desirous of getting from Japan, by and large, were contained in the TPP. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we couldn't take yes for an answer. So you're a professor now at Keio University? I'm an honorary professor. Do you, do you Make give, sure you underline that. <laughs> so even more important than a professor, uh, do, you, do you give grades to students? I uh, do for graduate students. Okay. So what grade would you give the administration for the Free and Open Pacific, assuming we're halfway through the semester? I'd give them a C. C? Let's go around the region and grade some other grand strategies, yeah. uh, which is the focus of this podcast. Shinzo Abe. Shinzo Abe has been the brightest spot in the globe. This is a man who right now is the leader of the free world. Would that it be the United States, but we have eschewed that. It's Shinzo Abe, who's the most desired visitor in capitals around the world. He's the one who's holding high the flag of human freedoms, human dignity, human rights. Thank God for Japan and Prime Minister Abe right now. You know, in late 2018, the Pew Foundation did a poll around the world and asked what world leader people trust the most. It was all American and European leaders. And so, you know, President Trump did not do well. Xi Jinping did not do well. He was the one Asian leader. Merkel was the most trusted. Abe wasn't on the question. But in Australia, Lowy Institute around the same time asked the question and added Abe. He was by far the most respected leader in Australia. And I suspect that'd be true in a lot of parts of the world. Well, I think look at our own society. Japan is, in public opinion polls here, extraordinarily highly regarded. The U.S. Congress regards Japan and holds them in the highest esteem, I think, for their behavior, for their activities post-war, their support for the international institutions, etc. So uh, there's a lot to recommend itself in the way Japan's approaching not only Asia but the world. But most importantly, I think, has been the indefatigable diplomacy of Shinzo Abe during this whole time. So I don't know if you're a hard grader at at I'm Keio. a pretty hard grader. I'm a pretty easy easy grader at Georgetown, but I don't know if Abe's deserved an A yet. And the main reason is relations with the Republic of Korea. You and I have talked about this a lot, including to the Prime Minister himself and others in Japan and Seoul. It's it's kind of curious to me that that a Japanese grand strategy that's so successful in so many ways is kind of failing on the area that animated Japanese grand strategy for a thousand years, which is the Korean Peninsula. Mike, you're a musician, among other things, not a dancer. No. But it takes two to tango. And Shinzo Abe does not have a partner right now in South Korea. 
The Japanese have, since 1965, signed two international agreements, binding international agreements with governments, legitimate governments of the Republic of Korea. And right now, the Moon Jae-in government has moved the goalposts. So it's a little difficult for me to pin this all on Mr. Abe. Mm -hmm. So prior to 2015 and the latest agreement between Japan and South Korea, I would agree with you. I've given Mr. Abe a slightly lower mark since then. Mm -hmm. I'm pinning the tail on the Korean Peninsula and South Korea on the present contretemps. This Japan-Korea relationship may be one of the most important strategic relationships for us, for the U.S. and the region. I mean, if, if China has a strategy to marginalize the U.S. influence, to create a sphere of influence in Asia, the Southeast Asia front is important in this, but the one that's probably most consequential is the Korean Peninsula. And I, I think most people in Washington would agree with you that the problem now is in Seoul. But that said, you know, since this affects us, is there a U.S. strategic approach for this no, or just well, patience? Well, there should be. But my observation from afar is that we haven't done what normally American diplomacy would do, and that is to step in and quietly urge a settlement. We've, you and I both, have talked to various ministers from both countries. I think the bureaucracies are ready for a betterment of relations. I don't think in the case of Seoul, the Blue House is ready yet. You mentioned in China. This is this leaves the playing field open to China. And there are reports today that Xi Jinping may be visiting Seoul uh, towards the end of the month, maybe right prior to the Osaka G20. How do you grade Xi Jinping's grand strategy in Asia right now? Well, in grand strategy in Asia, he's got one, and it includes the Russian Federation, and it's organized around one concept, that is, the Americans are leaving, and we want to usher them out the door as quickly as possible. So he's got an organizing reason uh, for his strategy and his improved, much improved relationship with the Russian Federation. So that element, I give him high marks for his strategy. There's another element, and that is for his economic strategy, and I give him lower marks here because it's so avarice, it's so charging interest rates, all of those things. It's economic tradecraft in a malign way, so I give him bad marks for that. And finally, I give him the worst marks for his own handling of his domestic problems, whether it's a situation with the Uyghurs, which is a terrible human rights disaster, or the fear he has of his own people. This second conversation is from episode 12 of the Asia Chessboard, featuring Ambassador Kurt Tong. Ambassador Tong and Mike debate how the United States can rebuild its trade strategy in Asia and the potential for a regional digital trade agreement. So, you know, your career, you're kind of like Zelik, not Bob Zelig. Zelig, but Zelig, <laughs> the, the character who pops up all the time throughout history and in, in, in photographs and so forth. So you were there. We first met in something like 91 or 92 mm -hmm. when you were, the, I guess, the junior econ officer on the Japan, Japan desk. desk. And I was right. a PhD student at SAIS, and there were others who were still in this field. Some in the economic policy world, some like me, more national security. Right. So you were at that Japan piece. Then you wrote this essay proposing U.S.-Japan FTA in 95. Right. You went to Korea, um, did APEC. You were in China. Mm -hmm. Also, I believe, as yeah. economic minister. Um, so you've sort of touched on all these different pieces. It built over the course of your career towards what you mentioned, FTAP, free trade of the area of the Asia Pacific, which in turn, I think, had we done it, would have given us a lot of leverage to get China to make concessions. Right. TPP, plus what probably would have come on the other side of the globe, TTIP, right. transatlantic agreement, would have given us a huge amount of leverage vis-a-vis -vis China. How do we get that back now? We, you know, the president yeah. prefers bilateral free trade agreements, he says. 
The diet of Japan just passed one with us, but it's it's pretty small ball compared to what we were going rel- for. It is small ball. Um, you know, the strategy as as abandoned was for the United States to do the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the Transatlantic Partnership, put the two together. You've basically recreated the WTO and with China on the sidelines and then use that pressure to bring China around through uh, structural reform. You know, a useful grand strategy, difficult to execute as it turned out. But I think uh, it's a good one. And getting back to that, I think may require focusing on issue by issue rather than doing these um, comprehensive agreements. Because there's so much complexity in uh, one of these across-the-board free trade agreements that you end up instigating political opposition in enough corners of a democracy in particular that then it becomes very politically difficult to deliver on the mechanism. So, for example, I think there's a lot of talk right now between the U.S. and Japan of now that we've done this digital services agreement bilaterally, how do we push that out and bring other countries on board and maybe move it at some point to the WTO, those basic principles of how data trade should be governed and all the questions around data privacy and the proper approach to cybersecurity, balancing that with human rights, et cetera. All of that, um, there's a great potential. It's a very important issue set, great potential for all these countries to come together with with common views and and have an effect on the the future development of the economy. That may be a more realistic approach than a series of grand FTAs. I don't don't want to give up on that FTA strategy. I think it's useful, but maybe we need to build back up to it and restore confidence in U.S. leadership and our own confidence domestically that we know what we're doing in international economic relations before we jump in with both feet on a, say, TPP. 14, 15 years ago, when you were in Korea and then in the White House, when I was in the White House, the question was whether Korea, or in the case of what became TPP, Vietnam, or even Japan were up for this. There were real questions about that. Uh, We had very little doubt about ourselves because we had passed so many FTAs. Um, The irony of all this is that the Japanese, the Koreans, the Vietnamese are up to this right? because they're afraid of China. Um, and now we're the ones who've stumbled. But I and, wonder- and, and, and we've, in my opinion, misdirected our anxiety about China, the threat of China. Explain you know. what you mean. Well, I think that we're doing a lot of small ball approaches to the, the China problem rather than working with, with like-mindeds and, and working at the level of general principle and then trying to, to push that toward China where, you know, let's, let's go after one company here or do a little bit of export mm-hmm. controls there, or do these very transactional agreements that we're trying to do in the bilateral trade space, rather than than really trying to focus on the big picture. I mean, I know that sounds, to some people that sounds Pollyannish, and that we tried that, we had all these dialogues with China, and it didn't work, so we need to just use specific leverage on very specific issues. But, you know, there's so many issues out there that if you, if you come at it that way, it could take forever. You know, you're career sort of went from the bilateral to the regional to the to the your last job in EB in the economic bureau towards global right. rules it must be incredibly frustrating that TPP just collapsed um, in your quite frustrating uh, yeah final years like, in the government like I'm a, not trying to no a project lay that you're in, working but, on for 10 years <laughs> not not succeeding yeah it's more and than it's, that it's, it's our first FTA that we haven't ratified yeah yeah um, so it is frustrating but here's the silver lining to your point about the US Japan uh, digital services agreement 
Tell me what you think. I mean, maybe we were spending a lot of time on things like state-owned enterprises and tariffs uh, and ag in the in TPP and in these other bilateral agreements. But in 30, 40 years, what's really going to matter is uh, the digital space. And, and, and we're talking about I 5G, the Internet of Things. So maybe if you think about the trajectory of technology, this digital services agreement is actually something that may matter in the longer run more than TPP and the trade agreements. Well, I think that's right. Um, and I think I, I wouldn't include state-owned enterprises as a sunset issue. I would think that that's still a very relevant <laughs> one. But I think the amount of time that we spend talking about tariffs and dealing with tariffs is 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 frankly a bit absurd. I mean, tariffs are, are attacks on inward trade. You're hurting your own economy when you do it. You're protecting somebody that probably doesn't deserve to be protected. I know that sounds very hard, cold to to people in 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 struggling industries, but. You know, giving up your tariffs in order to get tariffs down, too much attention on tariffs. The non-tariff issues and the structural issues, I would include SOE reform in there, but but things like antitrust regulations, investment rules, accountability and transparency requirements in, in, in financial transactions, all that stuff is extraordinarily important, uh, along with the digital piece. And, uh, and really, can, a lot of work can be, can be done there if, uh, if people emphasize it. Where are you on the 5G and Huawei question? The criticism you had earlier was that the administration's picking on one company here, one company there. But when you're talking about 5G, it's it's Huawei. And right. the de facto ban on, on Huawei participation in, in our 5G procurement, 5G market is being uh, also taken by Japan, Australia, and other countries. But we've also put Huawei on the entities list. Um, right. So w- was that a bridge too far? Was that too much, you think? Where do you draw well, the line? My, my personal view is that if we're not confident that we can monitor and regulate Huawei equipment used in the United States in a way that doesn't create a cybersecurity threat, okay, great. So let's not buy mm-hmm. Huawei equipment and, and requiring U.S. procurement not to use that equipment makes makes perfect sense. Some countries say that they're confident they can do it, like the U.K. is kind of trying to figure it out. Um, I think each country can decide that for themselves uh, and we'll just deal with it. I think going beyond that to then say, well, let's try to just really damage this company because it's competitive on a technology is is a bridge too far. So the entity list piece, all it does is hurt U.S. companies who are trying to sell legitimate stuff. If they shouldn't transfer it because it's too high tech, then put a limitation on certain categories of technology export. But a blanket uh, entities list designation, because it's a competitive company, I think sends the wrong signal about how global markets should work. Yeah. I think it also puts us out of alignment with our closest allies. Well, that's right. And also, even going around to different countries, as the U.S. government has attempted to do, and say, don't buy Huawei. You know, their response is, well, then what do we buy? Or, or why should we actually care if the Chinese are listening to our conversations? Because we're not involved in a... We're not the United States. We're not involved in a competitive military relationship with China. And we don't really care if they if they hear like what we're ordering for dinner, and um, that's a legitimate response from from these countries. So trying to make it into a it really I think crosses over into a containment strategy, which is, should not be the approach to China. I think the approach should definitely be one of of entanglement. Come up with rules, get the world to agree to them, and and tie China up with those rules. And if you think of the problem as a chessboard, like this podcast, you want as many of us as possible and as few of them. 
And it seems to me that uh, the debate in Germany and in Britain is shifting in directions that are probably not good for Huawei. Still very much up in, up in the air, but you know the British put off their decision because of Brexit, essentially. And mm-hmm. the German uh, Bundestag is pushing back hard against uh, the government. And I think uh, U.S. strategy focused on creating an ecosystem for an alternative to Huawei and a, at least in advanced industrial democracies, a ban on Huawei and procurement can can create a team, if you will, or a, or a, or, a, or scale mm-hmm. that's considerable. But but if we uh, continue the entities list, I, th- I think we probably push uh, China and Huawei towards creating their own operating system to compete with iOS and Android. And, that's Android, right. and then you're, you're, you're huge, stimulating yeah. more market distorting state down investment in a in the very sector that where you're trying to compete. So it doesn't make sense as a tactic either. And we're not um, talking about Japan in the 1980s or 90s. China has different scale. And the reality is, as you pointed out earlier, a large part of the developing world and the developed world is going to buy Huawei because it's cheaper and it's better financing. So we're not going to strangle them. They're going to have and, somewhere and, between 40 and 60% of the world market probably. And it's one generation of technology and it's a certain subcategory of one generation of technology yeah. that we're talking about. So I think it'd be much more important. And, and you know, your colleagues here at CSIS, Matt Goodman and others, have been really working on this, trying to refocus people's attention on how does the U.S. actually strengthen its own competitive capability through domestic action. And I think that that's important. Now, how do we, if we have, if we have key firms and or key technologies that are important to our national economic future, how do we make sure that, that those are built well and are made competitive? Rather than trying to just knock down the other side, we need to be working on building up our own capabilities. But there are different rules in China about data localization and data reciprocity. And so the U.S.-Japan effort uh, reflects, I think, Prime Minister Abe's push in the G20 to create some rules around uh, reciprocity and data. I mean, ideally— So we do need to do that, right? Uh, Exactly. uh, And ideally, you create a set of rules that 80% of the global economy subscribes to, and then they'll eventually become the the predominant— rule set because the the isolated economy will become non-competitive. The last conversation is from episode 28 of the Asia Chessboard, featuring Senate Armed Services Committee ranking member Jack Reed. Senator Reed and Mike discuss bipartisan support for a more robust U.S.-Asia strategy and the new Pacific Deterrence Initiative. You know, looking at the Senate today, it's hard to know who's going to be the next Mike Mansfield, but I do see a lot of members on both sides of the aisle who are like Mansfield in that they are thinking about the Pacific. Younger generation, if you will. Uh, Shats from uh, Hawaii, my uh, buddy Dan Sullivan from Alaska. There's, there, there seems to be maybe some proto-Mike Mansfield starting to come up in the Senate these days on Asia. Well, I think there's a renewed interest in Asia, and, and some of that is a result of since 9-11, we were engaged in counterterrorism in the Mideast, and particularly after the invasion of Iraq, we were just um, tied down there. And so the interest and the attention of all of us, in fact, the particular president, President Bush, was uh, getting that solved if we could. Uh, and it took our attention away from, from Asia. And also, at that point, Asia and China particularly looked like it was moving in a positive direction. Uh, uh, Global economic engagement and a rising middle class looked like it would be the magic formula that would uh, move them away from the depths of uh, Maoism and the Cultural Revolution to a a more pragmatic and more integrated country in the world. Do you have a short boilerplate description of how we should think about strategic competition with China? The 
The Trump administration's first national security document uh, in 2017 said we are in strategic competition with China and Russia. For 20 years before that, including national security strategy documents I worked on, we didn't say that. We said we would work together on global issues. We had terrorism. We had climate change. Do you think that's right, that we're in strategic competition? And what's the concept of operations? What does victory look like? How do we organize ourselves? Well, I think we are in a strategic competition with uh, China and to a degree Russia, but China is a much more formidable foe because of its economic prowess and because it has put together this uh, authoritarian capitalism, if you will. Uh, They're very ingenious and entrepreneurial. The Soviets weren't that entrepreneurial. That's one of the reasons I think the Soviet Union collapsed. The economy just imploded on its own people and they rejected the Soviet Union. But China has been able to uh, grow its economy, to increase its middle class, uh, to be uh, dominant in in, in many areas uh, internationally. Now with Xi's ascension in 2012, you have uh, someone who's basically declared almost one man rule and also that China is no longer going to be just a or a player, they want to be the leader in, in Asia, if not the world. And they've made it quite clear that they're prepared to be confrontational. Their island constructions in, in the South China Sea, their recent actions in Hong Kong, they're not hiding anything any longer. And I think that's become more and more obvious. Yeah, the old Deng Xiaoping maxim, hide and bide, is behind us, which is an awfully big strategic mistake by the Chinese. They were doing pretty well before they started showing us what their intentions are. I think you're right. I think in terms of what's the strategy, obviously the strategy is to maintain a liberal international order in which uh, rights of uh, passage at sea are respected, the sovereignty of nations are are respected, uh, that there is a uh, appropriate trade and... uh, and of course, you want to deter any type of uh, armed conflict because the consequences could be significant. You know, China is putting together a formidable uh, arsenal in terms of ships and uh, particularly missile systems and uh, uh, doing lots of research. Uh, they're out aggressively researching and also taking information wherever they can find it. So this is becoming a much more perilous uh, proposition in terms of maintaining the international order in the Pacific as well as uh, maintaining the peace. I've testified a few times in front of your committee on China, and, you know, it felt like if you covered your eyes up, you wouldn't know who's a Republican and who's a Democrat. It, It seems like this is an area where there's a fairly broad bipartisan consensus about the problem we're looking at. Is that right? I think there is a very broad bipartisan consensus. The uh, Pacific Defense Initiative, which is uh, a part of our NDAA this year, was a product of a collaboration between Chairman Inhofe and myself, a, a very, very thorough and, and uh, friendly collaboration because we both recognize, and not just us, you mentioned several other of my colleagues on the committee who are quite astute, in fact, very astute about Asia. And this recognition is there. Maybe this is a good time to hear a bit more about the PDI. What are the lines of effort? Is it a change? I think there was a recognition by both sides that we had not focused sufficiently on the Pacific. We had not a coherent plan. We we understood uh, an emerging threat, but we didn't understand very well the strategy to confront it. And so basically, we decided to try to raise up the profile uh, and concentrate on several things. First, 
increasing the lethality of our forces in the Pacific because we're seeing a much more lethal uh, opposition, particularly in China. And then enhance the design and posture of our forces so that we're, we're better deployed, we're better communicating, we're better integrated. It's not the service by service. You know, the Navy does their thing, the Air Force does their thing. We want that integration. And then we have to strengthen our alliances and partnerships. Uh, we cannot do this alone by a long shot. We need the collaboration and cooperation of traditional allies like Australia and Japan. Uh, we need uh, emerging nations. We need uh, a major effort to bring us all together. And then finally, we have to get demonstration, experimentation, and innovation, because you're not going to learn how to get the job done unless you go out and try to do it in practice. That's that's one of the key aspects, I think, that, that ties this all together. We're not just going to you know, sort of talk about it, et cetera. We're going to actually go out there and practice this and make the mistakes in practice, not when the, the, the flag comes down. Then there's another area, too, about the Pacific Defense Initiative, uh, we've asked the Department of Defense to identify all the significant funding that's going to the Pacific in one place. It's scattered all over, as you can imagine. And when you get it in one place, now we'll be able to t- take a look and say, well, what's really going into the Pacific? So those are the features, the most prominent features of the Pacific Defense Initiative. And I, I think it's been embraced enthusiastically by the Department of Defense. And again, it has got strong bipartisan support. One of the tough questions about forward posture and capabilities and how we spend resources in the Pacific is what to do about ground forces. And, you know, we have a forward presence with the Army in Korea and the Marines in Okinawa that's basically a residual World War II and Korean War presence in some ways. And, you know, General Berger at the Marine Corps is thinking in in new ways about the Marine Corps' role in high-end war fighting in the Western Pacific. And the Chief of Staff of the Army is also really working to realign the Army. But it's it's a maritime theater. So, you know, in the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, how did you think about the role of the of ground forces of the Army and the Marine Corps? Well, I think the Marine that, Corps and the Army both are talking about uh, getting their forces into the first island chain, dispersing their forces, having them coordinated, uh, multi-dimensional coordination with the Air Force, with the Navy, with space, arm them with uh, anti-ship missiles, hopefully provide air defense systems that are capable because particularly against some of the new missiles that the Chinese are developing. And what that will do, they believe, and I think it's worth trying to justify or or examine, is first of all, it'll disperse a concentration of forces which are very vulnerable to attack by, by anyone, including the Chinese. Then I think it will provide more areas in which the opponent has to neutralize before they can move into the chain. So that makes the task of the opponent much more complicated. And then again, if we do it correctly and we're, we're sure we have the kind of uh, communication, uh, logistical support, which might require redundancy in the theater, that's one area too of the Pacific Defense Initiative looking at logistics. Uh, that, I think, is is going to be seriously tested in terms of operational wargaming, um, not just tabletops, but in the field, too, and just to see how we can maximize uh, this new dispersed effort of land forces in the Pacific. Thank you for listening or re-listening to the Asia Chessboard. We will be back in two weeks with our 50th episode For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, 
visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia Program page.